For those of you guys uh, watching online from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains, my name's Joe. I'm the pastor of Lynchburg City Church. If God puts it on your heart to give to the church, uh, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. Uh, just take a second. Let's all pray together. Uh, Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. Because you first loved us. And today, Lord, I, uh, I think of President Biden, um, as well as all of our leaders, as 1 Timothy 2 reminds us to, to, to pray for them. I pray uh, that you would help him, that you would protect him. Lord, his, his physical health, yes, his mental health. Um, Lord, he needs you. I pray that you would save him and help him to make good decisions. For our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, space force, those serving at home and abroad, we pray for their safety and protection, and we, we pray that you would save them too. Some of those guys, they don't know you. They don't love you. They don't care about you. Save them, Jesus. And Lord, for the persecuted church, I'm thinking of Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian. Or Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran because he's a Christian. Or Pastor Wang or John imprisoned in China because they are Christians. For the Christians, Lord, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in Eritrea, in Somalia, in the South Sudan. Please help them. As the author of Hebrews reminds us to remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. Jesus, help them. Please help them. And Lord, help us today to hear from you. We want to hear from you. So whatever like distractions we've got going on, whatever competing thoughts, <clears throat> whatever uh, else we're dealing with, I just pray you give us a moment of clarity to hear from you today. We need you, Jesus. So just help us to hear from you uninterrupted right now from your word. Help me as I handle the text. Help me to say only what you want me to say. Protect me from error. Protect me from saying something I shouldn't. We pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, if it is your first time at Lynchburg City Church, uh, just of course as a reminder, we love expository preaching. That's where you go verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter through the text. Uh, and so we have been going through John's Gospel for quite a while. Um, this is actually the, the 20th sermon that I've preached in John's Gospel. We do that for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because it's just easier to understand and follow. Like you wouldn't start a movie, movie halfway through a movie and then think that you can make sense of it. That doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't read a novel. But usually that's how uh, oftentimes we handle the Word of God. We just jump around, read random verses, take things out of context. And that's another benefit. It helps us to maintain the author's intended meaning. So um, this will be the 20th sermon, and we're going to start in chapter 7, right where we left off at the end of chapter 6 last week. And let's get right into it. Chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went into Galilee... He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The Jews that he's referring to here are specifically the Jewish authorities. Now, up to this point, Jesus spent over a year in Galilee. In fact, that, that year of ministry in Galilee, that's what the synoptic gospels, that'd be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John, that's really where they focus most of their attention and it says in verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of booths, this is also called tabernacles, 
was at hand. And this is a really important feast. It's about a week long. It would run through the Jewish lunar month that falls from September to October. And, and this story where we're picking up is probably somewhere around six months after the feeding of the, the 5,000. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, this was one of the most popular feasts. Actually, of the, the three biggest feasts, this is the most popular, bar none. And, and so during these feasts, if you were a faithful Jew, you take off from work and you would road trip it to Jerusalem for the feast. And for this feast, what the people would do, the Feast of Booths, is they would make these makeshift structures or booths, right, of branches and leaves to live in while they were there for the week. And it was sort of kind of a memorial to remember God's faithfulness during the wilderness wanderings when their ancestors lived in temporary housing. That's, that's what the Feast of Booths is, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so it says in verse 3, so his brothers, this is Jesus' brothers, they said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So there's this reference in verse 3 and 3 to, for his brothers. And these would be Jesus' younger half-brothers. According to Matthew 13, 55, you've got Joseph, you've got James, you've got Simon, you've got Judas, not Iscariot, different Judas. And then he's also got, of course, other half-sisters. And I, I mention this because I'm, I'm teaching you something very, very different than what the Catholic Church uh, teaches. Uh, that Mary was sinless, that she was a perpetual virgin. And so I usually tell people this, if you ever find yourself in a situation and, and someone says one thing and the Bible says another, just go with what the Bible says. That's really good advice. Like if I'm ever up here and I start like spouting off heresy because I'm having a stroke or something, you're like, that's not what the Bible says. That's okay. Go with what the Bible says. Always go with what the Bible says. That's how we can be like the Berean Christians in the book of Acts. Always go with what the Bible teaches. And so his brothers are telling him here, you need to go down to Judea that your disciples may also see your works. And it almost kind of makes it sound like the disciples haven't seen his works, but that's not the case. They, they have witnessed his miracles. And so a few things are kind of all happening here at once, including the fact that his brothers very well may be aware of the large-scale defections that took place at the end of chapter 6. Now remember at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Many commentators say it could be upwards of 20,000 people when you account for the women and the children. And what happens? By the end of the chapter, he goes from 5,000 to 11 guys. Okay, one chapter, 5,000 followers, 11 followers. And if his brothers are aware of that, if that is their point of view, well, then going to Judea seems like the obvious course of action. Jesus, you need to hurry up and go to Judea, to Jerusalem, before you lose any more followers, okay? Before you lose any more momentum. And that's because, as I said earlier, this is one of the three major festivals uh, there at the time. And when, this, when these festivals happen, the population of Jerusalem, it just balloons. Like everybody comes to Jerusalem for the festivals. It's like college for a weekend. Okay, huge. It's just traffic. It's, that's how it is there. And if he goes there at this time to do his miracles, he would no doubt be able to entertain a much larger crowd than normal. Not to mention the most religious people of the whole nation would be there during this time and what better place for a religious guy like Jesus their brother to go 
demonstrate his stuff. And if Jesus happens to land the, the interview and the ruling religious leaders there in Jerusalem, if they sign off on Jesus, well, then maybe his brothers, maybe they could also sign off on Jesus. Maybe they could also do the same as verse 5 actually tells us. For not even his brothers believed in him. And this is where I think it's really interesting. When you think about what they're saying, because they don't say, Jesus, we don't think you can do these miracles. They don't say that. They don't say, we think these things you've been doing aren't, like, legit. They're false. They're, they're gimmicky. They're, there must be some type of explanation. They're just some type of cheap trick. They don't say that. They don't say, we don't want to be associated with you because you just keep embarrassing us. Because if they said any of those things, that would certainly be more understandable for why John says in verse 5 that they don't believe. But therein lies the irony. They do believe in his miracles. They do believe he can do these unexplainable things, they, these amazing things, and they really like it. And so if he can show up in Jerusalem during one of the three major festivals when everyone is there, especially the important religious people, then he certainly could win more followers, and he certainly could increase his popularity. His brothers are in many ways like the superficial disciples back in chapter 6, verse 60, the bandwagon guys, the guys that jump on the bandwagon when a sports team wins a championship. Like they've, they've never been uh, a Georgia Bulldogs fan uh, until after they win the national championship. Oh, oh, yeah, I've been my whole life. No, you haven't. Like, like you've never been that. That's what these guys are like. They've, they've heard, they've seen, they've witnessed miracle after miracle, but to no avail. As verse 5 tells us, not even his brothers believed in him. And, and here's what I want you to know, especially for those of you who have family members who are not Christians, who don't believe in Jesus, because I know it can certainly feel really discouraging at times. Most of you guys know my dad's not a Christian, and my sister my brother-in-law, a lot of family members, as I'm sure it's true for you. And here's what I just want to remind you of. And that is despite their current unbelief, the brothers in 7-5, years later down the road when we arrive in the book of Acts, his brothers do get saved. And they do end up believing. And they do end up worshiping him as God. So keep praying, keep hoping, and keep witnessing to them. And it says in, in 6, verse 6 now, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now, if you remember back to the wedding of Cana back in chapter 2, this is a very similar response. Verse 6, very similar response to what he tells his mom. My time has not yet come. And for Jesus in John's gospel, this reference to my time has not yet come, it's almost always a reference, right, to his substitutionary death on the cross. And so he effect, effectively says, you guys, you guys can do whatever you want to do. And that is because for the brothers, they don't belong to God. They belong to the world. Which is why one commentator says that the brothers, what they do is utterly without significance as far as God is concerned. And that's basically confirmed by the very next verse. See verse 7, it says, The world cannot hate you, brothers. It can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world hates Jesus and his followers. The world hates you. The world hates you 
The world hates your guts. And I would tell you to consider it a badge of honor if they do. Consider it a badge of honor, brothers and sisters. This is par for the course because the world doesn't like hearing the truth. It doesn't like having its sin exposed. It doesn't like hearing that what it's doing is wrong. And unlike Jesus, well, the world, of course, they don't hate his unbelieving brothers. And that's because the brothers belong to the world. They're a part of it. The brothers, see, the brothers are motivated by the very thing that the world lives for. Remember back in verse 3 and 4? We just read it. What Jesus was told by the brothers to go to the city, to go to Judea, to go to Jerusalem, so that he could become more well-known, he could become more popular, he could become more well-liked. Remember that? Because that's the answer. The brothers belong to the world. And just like the world, what they care about is their own glory, their own praise. They don't care at all about God's. And for so many people today, this is also what they love. It's what his brothers love. It's what his brothers crave. The brothers, they like the idea of having a popular and powerful person related to them. It makes them feel good and special. But this for the brothers is the root of their sin. It is the praise of man, not the grace of God or the glory of God. And you might know it by another name. Pride. Because pride at its root is this craving for human approval. This craving that others will appraise you and affirm you and celebrate you. And so they don't hate the brothers. They're a part of their group. And it says in verse 8, you go up to this feast, brothers. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So he tells the brothers he's not going to go. But then after verse 10, he does go. Which I remember reading this like when I was an undergrad student and it confused me. For the very reason, maybe it's causing you to scratch your head. Wait, he just told the brothers he's not going, but he did end up going. So that seems kind of contradictory. But what he meant was this. I'm not going to go, brothers, the way you want me to go. You want me to go so I can gain everyone's approval. Because you're the type of guys in which that's all you care about. You guys love the applause, you love the praise, you want all the glory for yourself, and so while I am going to go, I'm just not going to go that way. And so Jesus now leaves Galilee for the final time. And he does so, as the text tells us, in private. And verse 14 will also note in a moment when he finally does go, he does so in the middle of the week in which Probably many of the people would have already left, thus avoiding the red carpet, avoiding the fanfare, and avoiding all the attention. And it says in verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Where's, do you know where he's at? Where, where is he at? Where, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. And while some said, yes, he, he's a great man, he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. The Jews here are specifically the religious authorities there in Jerusalem. And these religious authorities understand that they would have also had uh, governmental or, or civic powers as well. Kind of blended together the two. 
And it says, okay, you got some groups are like, yeah, he's great, he's awesome, he's a good guy. And others are like, no, 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 he's not. And ultimately, for fear of those religious leaders, no one spoke openly. Because they're super afraid. They're so afraid, they, they won't even mention his name. And, and we live in a culture today that is, I'd say so evil, but that just seems like so redundant. It's very evil. And which the goal of the culture is to bully you. The goal is to threaten you. The goal is to harass you if you believe in Jesus so that you won't worship Jesus. The goal is to get you to stay silent about Jesus. And the sad thing is, it works. It really does work. For instance, you know, only 10% of Christians have shared their faith in the last year. So if I lined, just randomly grabbed 10 of you guys, lined you up, only one of you has actually shared your faith with someone else in the last year. It works. Fear of man is highly effective. And these people are so scared to even mention the name of Jesus because of what the government and civic leaders might do. And I'm here to tell you right now that if you're scared to mention the name of Jesus, if you're scared to talk about the Bible and your faith and what it has to say, like, today, like in Virginia, in the United States, in which the worst thing that could happen to you would be a family member or a friend blocks you on social media or ignores you, or you get disinvited to maybe an event, because like, that's really the worst thing that could happen to you. Like Even if you lose your job, you're going to win the court case anyways. It always happens, right? Someone gets fired because of one thing or another, goes to Supreme Court, rules against them, and then they win like a big lawsuit. If you're still too scared to talk about Jesus, then maybe you ought to feel shame. Maybe you ought to feel embarrassed. Maybe you ought to feel convicted. Because let's just get real for a moment. Like, if you can't hack it as a Christian in America, you can't hack it anywhere as a Christian. And for too long, the church has made excuses for wimpy Christians within its ranks. And for some of us today, you just need to get your butt in gear. You get a little fired up too because the stakes are so high. There are so many people who are going to hell that walk past you every single day, but we're too afraid to say anything to them of spiritual significance. We're too afraid to even post up indirectly on social media discussing the Lord. The reality is the church doesn't need any more wimpy Christians. What the church needs are freaking warriors who won't give in to the fear of man and who care enough to be brave enough to openly talk about Jesus. That's just my opinion. But I do think it's right. And so, it says in verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? That Jesus fellow, he's never been to seminary, has he? Has he, has he even taken Evan 101? What is he? How is this? He's never been to the rabbinical schools? Check the roster again. No? I don't understand that. But to be clear, their amazement isn't a godly amazement. This isn't where they're like, be careful not to see it this way. They're not like, oh, wow, Jesus, you're so impressive. This is a very judgmental amazement. 
He drives a 2008 Ford Escape, and he's a pastor? That's way too nice of a car for him to drive. She likes, she wants to date him? Doesn't she know about, what is wrong with her? This is what's happening, and it's not good. This is not a godly amazement. This is, this is a, a judgmental amazement. This is a judging by appearances, not by a right judgment, as we'll see more in verse 24. And it says in verse 16, so Jesus answered them. Here's his response. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now think about that for a second. Like he could have said, I'm God's only son. What did you expect? He could have said, why don't you shut up, sit down, and quit being such judgmental jerks, you prideful, arrogant. But he doesn't. In fact, what he does, I think should be our example. What he says should be our example. He takes whatever admiration that they have for him, since he hasn't been to their schools, though it's judgmental to its core, just points him to God. The reason for X, Y, and Z, it's, it's God. See, some of you guys in here, you have the most amazing intellect. Some of you in here have an amazing work ethic. Some of you have just a natural beauty, okay? Some of you have been given so many different gifts. Whatever God's given you, it isn't for your personal glory. It's for His. Every single thing he has, all the talents, all the abilities, all the giftedness, right, that you have, it's not for your glory. It's not so people can say, you are so beautiful, you are so smart, you are so hardworking. It's ultimately to point back to him. I want you to see it that way. And that couldn't be more clear than right here by how he responds in verse 16. Let's jump to 17. And it says, if anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Is it your will to do God's will? Because what I find for many Christians today is that they do in fact have a desire to do God's will. But despite that desire being there, we find ourselves sometimes getting way off course from his perfect will. Like I was recently having a conversation with my daughter Geneva this week. She made a really good point. She said, Dad, people can just be so immature and impatient sometimes, and then as a result we get frustrated, like when I'm hungry and I want to get fed. Brilliant little girl. And in those moments, you know what we end up doing? We end up ignoring his will. We end up ignoring his will and we end up ignoring his timing. Where people know deep down it's not the right thing. Or, or that it shouldn't work. They ignore his will. They ignore his timing. They ignore godly advice. Because we get impatient. We want what we want when we want it. I want that job right now. I want that relationship right now. I want whatever that thing is. I'm just going to make it work. Okay? I'm going to ignore his will. I'm going to ignore his timing. I'm going to ignore all the godly advice given to me. I'm just going to like, like, like white knuckle, bare fisted, drive through. And, and we forget in the process. We have a good father, guys. 
and his will and his timing, it, it's always the best. It's hard because we don't like waiting. We don't. But I promise you, waiting patiently, and I, yes, I know it's hard. Just look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 41 to 3. I know it's hard, but it's always better when we do. More, more on verse 17 momentarily. I'm going to circle back to it. But let's go to verse 18 for now. It says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. He's talking about the type of individuals. He's talking about the type of leaders, the type of teachers, that when they speak and when they teach, and he singles out these type of individuals, by the way, Everything they do is just about everyone knowing how smart they are. And maybe you are this person. Maybe you know this person. Every time. They just, seems like it's not even about to teach. It's just so that you know how great they are. And that's not to say you can't know a bunch of stuff. It's not to say you can't be a nerd or anything like that. But the point is, when it comes to teaching, when it comes to speaking, it's not about letting everyone else know how smart you are. The point is to help people meet Jesus. That's the point. When we teach and when we speak, we want to help people meet Jesus. And these are the same type of people that Jesus speaks of in Matthew's gospel who love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They love being called rabbi by men. So what we're dealing here is, once again, Pride. We're dealing with the person who cares more about others thinking well of them than they actually care about the person that they're teaching or talking to. I, I saw this silly reel the other day making fun of this very thing. I know none of you guys watch reels in here, but some do. This guy was pretending to be the, the senior, that's really funny, the senior elder executive global pastor Supreme Allied Commander. And it was just poking fun of pastors and religious leaders who have these, all these made-up titles to make sure people know how important they are. Kind of like the religious leaders here. Like It's the, the type of religious leader, type of pastor who has got the, the private security detail, and unless your monthly giving hits six figures, you can't see him in the green room before or after the service. But take art. The backup, assistant to the youth pastor, he's available for all your pastoral care needs. This is what he's getting at here. We laugh because it's silly, but we also laugh because it's true. These are the type of people he's calling out right now. And so verse 18 hones in on this idea of truth-telling versus dishonesty versus pride versus this man-centric, I'm doing everything for my glory. And the reason this is so important is because this is why you exist. You're like, wait, wait, this is why I exist? Yes, every single one of us. Every single one? Yep, every single person on the planet, you exist for God's glory. You were made for God, as the prophet Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone, that kind of sounds like everyone, so I'm going to go with that. Who is called by my name, the Lord says, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is why we exist. The point of verses 17 and 18 is so that you know this. The point of verses 17 and 18 is so that you know Jesus is true. That he really is who he claims to be. So your faith can be strengthened. And for some of you who have been doubting your faith entirely. That upon hearing and seeing this, you will know, yes. Yes, he is true. He is true. 
And so verse 19 says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. He's given it to you. You don't keep it. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon! Who is seeking to kill you? They essentially say, Jesus, you're just paranoid. Jesus, you're just crazy. Because it's way easier when you're angry and upset and mad at somebody, like they are at Jesus, to just call him crazy, than to admit that what he's saying is true. To admit that, yes, they, they do want to kill him. To admit that he knows their hearts and minds. And that's only possible if he's actually telling the truth. And so Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. The one work, going back to verse 21, he says, I did one work, you all marvel at it. The one work that he's referring to here, it goes back to the very beginning of chapter 5 where he healed the guy on the Sabbath. That's, that's where this is contextually at. He says, I healed this guy, you all marveled, but you didn't marvel at the fact that I did a miracle. Your astonishment didn't lead to the glory of God. It didn't lead to the praise of his name, but rather your shock was because I told him to stand up and carry his mat and it happened to be on a Saturday, right? The Sabbath, that's your whole issue here. And then in verses 22 and 23, he just goes to prove their hypocrisy. See, here's the issue. This reference to circumcision. The, the Jews would circumcise their little baby boys on the eighth day. And if the eighth day just so happened to fall on a Sabbath, well, they had no problem conducting the circumcision despite it being a Saturday. And that's because the rabbis taught that you weren't really breaking the law when you circumcise, even if it happened to be a Sabbath, because it's done to help the little boy. It's a medical procedure to help the little baby boy. And Jesus is saying, so let me get this straight, guys. You've got no issue with doing a circumcision, with helping one part of the person on a Sabbath. But if I heal a man who can't walk for 38 years on the Sabbath, you do have an issue? Is that what you're saying? You're saying it's okay to help with one part of the body on a Sabbath, but it's not okay to make the whole body whole? No further questions. That's, like, that's how it feels, like, you guys are just foolish idiots. Pure hypocrisy on their part. That's what he's exposing right now. Not to mention, oh, by the way, the Sabbath, it's always meant to help us, to be a gift for us. Not something to make our lives harder, not something to make our lives more difficult. And what the religious leaders had done is they made the Sabbath more important than people. And keep in mind, God never said that healing counted as prohibited Sabbath work. That, that was their rules, not God's. And here's the thing to remember when it comes to rules. Just because God makes rules doesn't mean you get to do the same. But what frequently happens is, is we make rules and then we add them to God's laws. And then we say that they're of equal importance. And so at the end of verse 23, he says, you guys are mad at me because I helped heal this guy? You're angry enough at me that you, you want me dead? Why? Well, he already gave the answer back in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? That's the answer. You guys don't keep the law. 
You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You guys are a joke. You got all the Bible verses memorized, but you don't actually do what they say. Great to memorize the Bible. Yeah, that's really good. Even better when you actually do what it tells you to do. And so we come to verse 24. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. One of the, I think, greatest misconceptions in all of Christianity in, what's today's date? October 1st, 2023? Yeah, we'll we'll timestamp it for right now. One of the greatest misconceptions is this unbiblical idea that as Christians, we're not supposed to judge people, which I always find ironic because the people that love to bring this up and throw it in the face of Christians are non-Christians. They're like the most non-religious people, just atheists, whoever. They've got Matthew 7 ready to go in attack mode, despite the fact that apparently they don't even believe the Bible, the very thing that they're quoting. They're like, you're a Christian. You're not allowed to judge. And I'm like, you just told me you're not a Christian, that you don't believe God, you don't believe the Bible is his word, yet you borrow from it whenever it's convenient for you. I usually say it nicer when I'm talking to a non-Christian who tells me, well, you can't judge. That's, that's not true um, at all in Matthew 7 or here in verse 24. But it's every non-Christian's favorite Bible verse and passage of Scripture No. So here's the big question in verse 24. How do you form right judgment? Because the the prohibitions, it's not against judging. It's judging poorly. It's judging unfairly. Jesus tells us, judge rightly. So how can you know if a judgment's right? How can you know if it's true? And here's what I did. I circled verse 24 and I drew a line back to verse 17. Because verse 17 is going to shed some light on that. It's going to give us the answer. How do we judge rightly? How do we judge accurately? How do we judge fairly? How do we judge equitably? How do we judge truly? Verse 17 says, If anyone's will is to do God's, he will know. It's going to get really dense right now. So hang tight with me, okay? In other words, having the right will Having the right will is the foundation of right knowing. You want to know right? you got to have the right will. But but there's a problem. And that in order to know the truth, I have to have my will aligned with God's will. But then when you read like a John 1.13 or a Matthew 16.17 or Romans 8.7 or the first five verses of Ephesians 2, it becomes very, very clear that that is not my natural state. That is my will being aligned to God's will. And so when verse 17 says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, well, we'll know. We hit a huge roadblock. And it's not a new roadblock, but it is huge. In fact, it's been a, a, a theme for Jesus going back to chapter 6, in which he says back in chapter 6, verse 37, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you to me. And then in case we forgot that he said that, he says it again in verse 44 of chapter 6, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you to me. So verse 37, unless the Father gives you. Verse 44, unless the Father draws you. And then chapter 6, verse 65, you can't come to me unless it's granted by the Father to come to me. You say, well, then who could possibly ever come? Who could possibly have his will aligned with God's will to know the truth if our will is by nature in opposition to God to begin with? And that's the point of verse 17. You can't. And we say this in church. But I don't think we really believe it. 
Like, if we believed it, we wouldn't say things like, yeah, you can't save yourself, but if you pray a prayer, you can. And oh, by the reason, the only, the only reason you pray a prayer is because a work of God has already been initiated in you to align your will. The work of salvation is not initiated by praying a prayer. The work of salvation is not initiated because you walk an aisle. And that's because dead people, and that's, I'm just borrowing the language of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, dead people don't do anything. You say, well, what does he mean by dead people? Dead people. That's, that's what he means. He's like, all right, if someone's dead, you can't say, all right, I know you're dead. There's the defib paddles. If you can get over there, set the charge, and then go, you can be alive. We'd say, that's, that's just stupid, right? Yeah, Paul wants to be so clear. Dead people don't do anything. You can't. You can't. There is an inability. You can't. You say, well, why is this? Why does my will have to be aligned with God's will in order to know the truth if my will cannot be aligned unless I know the truth first? Like, if this is the case, how will my will ever be aligned with his? That's such a good question, by the way. Because out of it produces the answer. It's God's grace. That's the answer. And God's grace doesn't exist so that we can merely have extra words and lyrics to songs that we sing, but that we can marvel at God as a result. That we can be broken from our prideful, arrogant desires that want our own glory, that want people to like us and applaud us and praise us and tell us how awesome they think we are, how smart we are, how beautiful we are. And so if you want to break pride and arrogance in your life, then understand what Jesus is saying here and understand what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Grace kills pride. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is a pride killer for those glory seekers who love the praise of men like Jesus' brothers and the religious leaders that do everything with the motive of others thinking how great they are. That is the antidote that Jesus gives to us and my hope today is that we would drink deeply from it. So as the team comes today, I want to pray for us. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. We love you because you first loved us. To think that if we're sitting here today and we love you and we believe that you are who you said you are, God's only son who died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose from the, from the dead three days later. That's because we know the truth and that's because we do your will and that's because you've aligned our will to your will. That's because you've done a miracle in our lives. Nothing due to our, our, ourselves or our intellect or how smart we are. It's all your grace because it's all for your namesake. It's all for your glory. It's all about you, Jesus. And so God, today... For those of us, Lord, who struggle with this, I pray that you would free us. I pray that you would free us and help us to take the antidote, to see you as the one who moves and initiates and draws and grants and keeps us.
You do it all. You make it all happen. And if it wasn't for you, we'd all still be, like Ephesians 2 says, dead in our sins. We'd still be like the brothers in their current state in chapter 7. We'd be like the religious leaders right now. Who despite seeing miracle after miracle, we just don't believe anyways. Make us more like your son, Jesus. And help us to see your grace as bigger and better and more beautiful than we did 45 minutes ago, Lord. We pray this in your name, amen.